I'm Daniel Pierce, and you're listening to Grotto Pod. Today on Grotto Pod, we're continuing our summer reading series in which we bring you readings from Writers Grotto members. Today, we're featuring a reading from Bonnie Tsui, who will be reading from her new book, Why We Swim. A journalist and longtime contributor to the New York Times, Bonnie Tsui is also the author of American Chinatown, the winner of the Asia Pacific American Award for Literature and a San Francisco Chronicle bestseller. She lives, swims, and surfs in the Bay Area. Why We Swim is a cultural and scientific exploration of our human relationship with water and swimming. Published in April 2020, it was excerpted in the New York Times Sunday Review and was an editor's choice staff pick in the New York Times Book Review, which called it an enthusiastic and thoughtful work mixing history, journalism, and elements of memoir. Why We Swim has received praise from NPR's Weekend Edition, the San Francisco Chronicle, Booklist, Library Journal, Outside Magazine, Oprah, and more. The book was selected by the Los Angeles Times Book Club as its July 2020 read, and is also an LA Times and a Boston Globe bestseller. Now, here's Bonnie Tsui. Stone Age Swimming. The abalone does not want to come off the rock. Fifteen feet underwater, I jab the metal abalone iron underneath the shell, between the mollusk's muscular foot and the boulder it's fastened to, hoping for the pop I've been promised. Nothing. I try again, my breath beginning to bubble out of my nose with the effort of swimming in place, fighting the currents that are pulling me to and fro. Still nothing. This abalone, evidently sensing my presence, has locked down tight. Once that happens, I am finding, it's nearly impossible to remove. Diving for abalone is an attractive but dangerous sport. In pursuit of the elusive mollusk, I've submerged myself in the waters of Salt Point State Park along the solitary swishbacked Sonoma Coast two and a half hours north of San Francisco. The hazards are many. Cold water, rip currents, rocks, kelp tangles, heavy surf, sharks, Still, most every season, April through November, thousands of hopeful swimmers make their way to the northern California coast to try their hand at abalone hunting. The wild red abalone is the biggest in the world and is found only on the west coast of North America. It's where I can play the role of prehistoric hunter, swimming down for my dinner with zero experience. I hold a scuba certification, but over the years, all that gear has come to feel claustrophobic and encumbering when I'm in the water. Here, on this part of the coast, scuba tanks are illegal, so abalone divers are armed with few tools beyond their breath-holding and swimming skills. The reality of this back-to-basics, man-versus-nature pursuit is that every cove along this part of the coast, rangers say, is a gravesite. In 2015, four people died while abalone diving during the first three weeks of the season alone. It turns out that even experienced divers can't hold their breath for long. People who are used to wearing full tanks of air start to panic when confronted with this fact. In the murky water, it's tough to stay oriented. The swell will toss you against the rocks and then suck you out to sea. But still, I want to try. I learned to spot the abalone's rippling lip of black tissue, or mantle, against the side of a big craggy escarpment. I struggle to dislodge one, then another. An ancient pea-sized part of my brain lights up with satisfaction when I jackknife down to the seafloor, eyes on the prize, and finally hoist a six-pound abalone out of the water. I need both hands to haul it up and both legs to propel me. I can feel the grin forming on my lips before my head even breaks the surface. 
I've never felt the urge to shoot a bird for breakfast or run down a deer for dinner, but the direct appeal of swimming for my lunch is clear from the moment I spy the shellfish. There's something I need to understand about the act of swimming for something more essential than exercise. In my backyard later that day, I clean, trim, and pound the meat tender. Yep, with a rock. Cook it up over a flame and feed my family of four a meal I've prepared entirely with my hands and breath and body. We are divorced from our food sources. It is a recognized symptom of modern life. Swimming for resources allows me, for a moment, to resolve the disconnect. That evening, when I rinse my hands in the sink and watch the water drain away, I remember the rhythmic sluicing of seawater through the rocks along the shoreline and what it felt like to watch it all flow back toward the horizon. The first known record of swimming lies in the middle of a desert, somewhere in Egypt near the Libyan border, in the Sahara's remote and mountainous Gilf-Keber Plateau, there are swimmers breaststroking up the walls of a cave. The cave of swimmers, discovered by the Hungarian explorer Laszlo Almasy in 1933, contains a trove of Neolithic paintings that depict people in a range of underwater poses. Archaeologists have dated the creation of the artwork as far back as 10,000 years ago. At the time of Almasy's discovery, the notion that the Sahara had not always been a desert was a radical idea. Theories of a climate change that could account for the shift from temperate environs to barren, hyper-arid desert were so new that the editor of Almasy's 1934 book, The Unknown Sahara, reportedly felt compelled to insert footnotes stating disagreement. But the paintings convinced Almasy himself that water might have been a natural feature in the immediate vicinity of a cave, that the swimmers themselves were the painters, that a lake lapped their very toes as they worked. Where there is now a sea of sand, there was water flowing. Where one medium is liquid life, the other may seem to be its parched, granular antithesis, he thought. But the two were indeed connected. It turns out, of course, that Almasy was right. Decades later, archaeologists would find dried lake beds not far from the cave, from a time when the Sahara was green. His answer to the riddle of swimmers in the desert would eventually be confirmed with a remarkable abundance of geological evidence showing a landscape once dotted with ancient lakes, as well as the startling discovery of hippo bones and the remains of many other water-dwelling animals, including giant tortoises, fish, and clams. This wet period became known as the Green Sahara. Not long ago, in an old issue of National Geographic, I read about a paleontologist named Paul Sereno who further confirmed Almasy's hunch. In the fall of 2000, Sereno was hunting for dinosaur bones in a different part of the Sahara, the southern edge, in conflict-prone little-explored Niger, in the open desert some 125 miles from the country's largest city, Agadez, one of his expedition photographers scrambled up a remote group of dunes and stumbled across a massive trove of skeletons. This time, the bones weren't from dinosaurs or hippos. These eroding, windswept sand dunes revealed what turned out to be hundreds of human remains interspersed with prehistoric fragments of pottery that were up to 10,000 years old. Some of the pottery pieces were carved with wavy lines. Others were stippled with dots. And the burial place, which the scientists called Gobro, the Tuareg tribal name for the area, was the largest and earliest Stone Age cemetery found to date. 
it turns out that the Green Sahara was exactly the sort of place where prehistoric human swimmers might exist. And that's our show for today. Grotopod is produced by Brad Baluchian, Rita Chang Epic, George Higgins, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingartner. The music is by Sugar Tim. Grotopod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grotopod on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Pierce, and thanks for listening.